on February 15th in 1921. In New York City, the operating room of the Kane Summit Hospital, a doctor is performing an appendectomy. In many ways, the events leading to the surgery was uneventful. The patient has complained of severe abdominal pain. The diagnosis is clear, an inflamed appendix. But Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane is performing the surgery in his distinguished 37-year medical career. He has performed nearly 4,000 appendectomies. So this surgery will be uneventful in all ways except two. The first novelty of the operation is the use of local anesthesia in major surgery. Dr. Kane is a crusader against the hazards of general anesthesia, and he contends that a local application is far safer. So many of his colleagues agree with him in principle, but in order for them to agree in practice, they will have to see the theory applied. Dr. Kane searches for a volunteer, a patient who is willing to undergo surgery while under a local anesthetic. Volunteers not easily found. Many are squeamish at the thought of being awake during their own surgery. Others are fearful that the anesthesia might wear off too soon. Eventually, however, Dr. Kane finds a candidate, and on Tuesday morning, February 15, 1921, an historic operation occurs. The patient is prepped, wheeled into the operating room, a local anesthetic is applied, and as he has done thousands of times, Dr. Kane dissects the superficial tissues and locates the appendix. He skillfully excises it and concludes the surgery, and during the procedure, the patient complains of only minor discomfort. Volunteer is taken into post-op, placed in a hospital ward, and he recovers quickly and is dismissed two days later. Dr. Kane had proven his theory, and thanks to the willingness of a brave volunteer, Dr. Kane demonstrated that local anesthesia was a viable and even preferable alternative. Now, known as the most listened to man in broadcasting, you may remember years ago, Paul Harvey's claim to fame was a daily dissertation on unique and unfathomable stories of human interest. And during his 70 years in radio, his familiar voice grabbed and held the listener's attention, piquing their interest only to make them wait for the rest of the story, right? And then, like clockwork, he would deliver what was promised, an incredible but true climax that would stick in your mind for a long, long time and, in fact, might even change your life. I said that there were two facts that made Dr. Kane's surgery unique. The first I've already mentioned, it's the use of local anesthesia. The second unique and incredible feature was the patient. You see, the courageous candidate for the surgery performed by Dr. Kane was Dr. Kane. And that's the rest of the story. <laughs> to prove his point, Dr. Kane operated on himself. And as someone has pointed out, it was a wise move. The doctor became his own patient in order to convince other patients to put their confidence in the physician. But here's the rest of the rest of the story. He's not the only one to have done this. 
Leonid Ivanovich Rogozov also successfully removed his own appendix in 1961, and there are photographs of that operation. Rogozov knew that he was in trouble when he began experiencing intense pain in the lower right quadrant of his abdomen, and under normal circumstances, appendicitis is not life-threatening, but Rogozov was stuck in the middle of Antarctica surrounded by nothing but thousands of square miles of snow and ice and was the only doctor on his expedition. Now, as I recount these stories, you might find them very hard to believe. And as one author has written, perhaps it is, but the story of the doctor who became his own patient is mild compared to the story of the God who became human. The real story is that Jesus did that very thing. He became a human being, a man, flesh and blood, and he put himself in our place and allowed himself to walk a mile in our shoes, so to speak, so that you and I would believe that the great physician knows our pain. He understands our need. The great physician became the jaded patient. The one who heals became the one who hurt. Hurt? He felt it. Rejection, he knew it. Pain, he agonized in it. Abandonment, betrayal, he experienced both. Temptation, he was not immune to it. Misunderstanding, it dogged him wherever he went. Death, he tasted it. And stressful situations, he could write a book on it. Why did he do it? Why did he subject himself to such risk? Well, it's very simple. He did it for the same reason that Dr. Kane did it, so that when we hurt and we need help, we would go to him in confidence, knowing that he understands exactly what we are going through. There will come a time in your life, and I'm sure for many of you, in fact, most of you, there already has, when you will exhaust every possibility that you have for help, for healing, and for relief. And you will think that there is nothing left for you to turn to. You will feel that there is nobody on the face of the earth that can understand exactly what you're going through, that can understand what you're feeling, and it is at that point that you need to realize what today's message is all about. And although it may sound tremendously cliche, as you sit here this morning, the raw scriptural truth is this. Jesus knows how you feel. Jesus knows how you feel. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, if you would. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confessions. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, now, this has to be, in my assessment, one of the greatest, most hopeful and comforting passages in the New Testament. 
It personifies the message that the world so desperately needs to hear and strains right now to hear. It's the message that says, I can identify with you. I understand. I've been where you are. I know how you feel, and beyond all that, I can do something about it. Now, sometimes that thought seems so very superficial, doesn't it? Like when the politician walks into the Midwestern town, puts on some overalls, rolls up his sleeves, and milks some cows. Or when the social worker spends one night on the street with the homeless. Or when a famous Christian celebrity goes to a third world country to spend a week with the hungry while their entourage of photographers and videographers snap pictures and capture videos of them holding starving babies so that they can use it on their next album cover. All of these scenarios truly want to communicate the message of I care, and yet the dairy farmer knows that the politician will return to a sweet-smelling office on Capitol Hill and his business suit when the coveralls come off and the TV personnel are gone. The homeless person knows that the social worker will go home to a cozy apartment and the starving children see the Christian performer stopping at McDonald's on the way to the airport to fly home. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone who does these things has wrong motives because there are a lot of sincere people that are doing these things. Don't get me wrong. I'm just trying to make a point I'm using hyperbole. As hard as we sometimes try and with true sincerity utter the words, I know how you feel, the message often echoes like a cold, empty gymnasium. That's because as well-meaning as we are in our human weakness, our participation in someone else's pain is partial. Yet the message of Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 14 to 16 are quite different. Jesus' participation in the hurts of our humanity was not partial at all. It was complete. It was total. Jesus ran the full gamut of our trying experiences in life as well as the joys of our life. He knows how you feel. And if there's a message that you and I need to comprehend today, and maybe some of you need to hold on to it more than others at this juncture of your life, it's that in a calloused, chaotic world, we can find confidence in a Christ who cares. This text not only presents us with why you can have confidence in Christ in your present situation, but also why you must Put your confidence and your trust in him in that situation. And the first thing that I want to point out from this text is this, that we can have confidence in, a Christ, in Christ because of his unmistakable authority. His unmistakable authority. Verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest. Let's just stop right there. The book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish believers who were in danger of turning away from their professed Christianity back to Judaism. This book is a polemic delineating the superiority of Jesus Christ to anything else in the universe. The writer's basic premise in this book throughout the book is that we can have confidence in the person and the work of Jesus Christ for salvation. It's the whole premise. 
And the repeated warning throughout this book is that if we reject Christ as the author and as the means and as the finisher of our salvation, then there is nothing left on the face of this earth that we can turn to. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The writer says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, we as New Testament believers need to remember the same exact message, that if we don't have confidence in Christ's ability to save, then we have nothing left to place confidence in. Jesus Christ is the one and only way, the truth and the life, and that is because of his authoritative position at the Father's right hand. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't make any mistake about this, folks. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is the authority. Why? First of all, because of his supremely unmistakable position right there in verse 14. He's a great high Priest To the Jew, a high priest was the mediator between them and God, okay? Every year on Yom Kippur, and by the way, that's coming right up on September 27th, the high priest would become the representative of the people before God and God's representative before the people. He would present the offering for the sins of the people, to a holy God to make atonement for them, repairing this broken relationship through sacrifice. Now, this was done by sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, which was in the chamber of the temple known as the Holy of Holies. That's in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. Now, the place where God's glory dwelt, once in this chamber, the high priest found himself alone in, a humbling, in the humbling and holy presence of God. He was the only man allowed to enter this chamber and then only once a year. He could not remain in there. His offering had to be made quickly and without delay. And when he was finished, he immediately left and did not return again until the next year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Now, Jesus is called here in this text the great high priest. The emphasis is clearly on the superiority of Jesus' position. As our high priest, Jesus made a one-time offering on the cross, which never, repeat, never needs to be repeated Again, can I say that again? Never needs to be repeated again. Moreover, he didn't have to leave the Holy of Holies when that sacrifice was done. Instead, he is now in the presence of God in the authoritative position of power at his right hand. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, just a couple of chapters back. 
in verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That was far different than the Jewish priests did. Look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place, what's it say? Once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. We can have confidence in Christ's authority, not only because of his supremely unmistakable position, but also, secondly, because of his supremely unmistakable power. Again, look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. We, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. To enter the Holy of Holies in order to offer a sacrifice, the priest had to pass through three areas. The door into the outer court, the door into the holy place, and finally the veil into the Holy of Holies. Some commentators write that after Jesus had offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross, passed through three areas. He passed through the first heaven, that's the atmosphere, the second heaven, outer space, and into the third heaven, which is God's dwelling place. Now, Paul speaks of this third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 to 4. Now, I'm not sure that you can support the idea of Jesus passing through the atmosphere and outer space after he died. I don't see that in the scriptures necessarily. But the Bible does support that he went straight into the dwelling place of God and that he's right there right now today, even as we speak. Something that an earthly high priest never had the power to accomplish. Again, Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. For who? For us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Those are great verses of hope and confidence, aren't they? Christ's authority then is worthy of confidence because of his unmistakable position, his unmistakable power, and one more thought. 
We can place our unwavering confidence in Christ because of his supremely unmistakable person. Again, verse 14 of chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God. The writer combines the two most important elements of Christ's person here, his humanity and his deity, puts them together. Yes, he was Jesus the man, but he was also Jesus the Son of God. God's perfect man, man's perfect God. To quote Michael Card, that is unmistakable, isn't it? No one else can truthfully make this claim. Yet it was necessary for our salvation. The Old Testament high priest was a sinner. Therefore, he could only offer imperfect sacrifices, sacrifices like bulls and goats, etc. Jesus was sinless and offered up himself as the perfect sacrifice. And the scriptures are pretty clear when they speak of Jesus. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes, for there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and the people. Just one. He is the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message that God gave to the world at the proper time. Jesus himself testified to the Jews and to all, saying these words in John chapter 8. He said, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, I am who I am, you will die in your sins. You understand what Jesus is saying? You must believe that Jesus was God in the flesh and that he came to make sacrifice for your sins. The Good News Bible puts it like this, and you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am who I am. In other words, unless you believe that Jesus is Lord, that he is God, your Savior, you will die in your sins. That's why the writer ends this verse, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, with an exhortation. Look at what it says. Let us hold fast our confession. He's saying, hey, get a white-knuckle grip on your profession of faith and don't let go of it. Hold on to it for all your worth. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you have a strong enough grip on your confession of Christ that you would take a stand for him right now if you were called to do it. Philip Edgecombe Hughes wrote this. 
He said, faith is the belief that is both inwardly and outwardly professed before men. Have you had the opportunity to profess your faith in Christ before people lately? Have you ever? A few people are going to do it today at 1 o'clock as we baptize them. But beyond that, how many opportunities do we have in the course of a week to profess our faith before men? Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 32, for those who declare publicly that they belong to me, I will do the same before my Father in heaven. But if anyone rejects me publicly, I will reject him before my Father in heaven. Now, I don't think we can take this verse seriously enough, do you? Here's the truth of the matter, according to Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above all names, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Supreme authority, unmistakable authority, and we can have a confidence in a Savior like that. Secondly, second big point, we can also have confidence in Christ because of his undeniable affinity. Now, what do I mean by that? Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. My friends, Jesus may be far beyond us in authority, no question about it, but he is right beside us in affinity. He knows how we feel. He sympathizes with us. The word sympathize is an incredibly accurate translation of the original language because it's actually the word, the very word from which we derive our English term sympathize. It literally means to share the same feelings, to suffer with somebody by sharing in the same experience. This is not simple pity or empathy. It's more than simply having a knowledge of our human weakness and affliction, but includes a common sharing of the experience. In other words, he entered into our experience. Jesus entered into them and felt our heartaches in his own body, in his own soul. When we're hurting, it gives us great confidence to know that he comprehends our situation from that perspective, doesn't it? I don't think that we really believe. Deep, deep down, I don't think we can really get a good grasp on the fact that he was touched by our plight as humans. Because after all, he's Jesus. It's hard for us to believe that Christ really felt the same struggles that we struggle with. Max Lucado tells the story of a friend who was trying to teach his six-year-old how to shoot a basket. And the boy would take the basketball and push it as hard as he could toward the goal, but it always fell way short. 
And the father would then take the ball and toss it toward the basket, saying something like, just do it like this. It's easy. Ever done that with your child? Then the boy would try again and miss again. And the father would repeat the process and make the shot and encourage his son to push the ball a little bit harder. And after several minutes and many missed shots, the boy, in utter frustration, responded to his dad's continued encouragement by saying these words. Yeah, sure, dad, it's easy for you up there, but you don't know how hard it is from down here. Does that about cover the way we handle our own struggles? Don't we respond to God the same way? Oh, yeah, it's easy for you, God, up there, but you don't know what it's like for us down here. But he does know. He does know how hard it is from down here. And unlike us, he never forgets what it was like. I love how one person has translated this verse, 15. For we have no superhuman high priest to whom our weaknesses are unintelligible. He himself shared fully in all of our experience of temptation, except that he never sinned. Jesus is not out of touch with your reality, my friend. He's not. Break that statement down for a minute. He himself, he didn't send a proxy. Jesus went through it. He himself shared fully. He entered into our total human experience. He himself shared fully in all of our experience, not some of them, all of them, all of the heartaches, the disappointments, the pressures, the seduction. We just did a little series on Satan's seductions. Who did he do them on in the desert? First, Jesus some people can't handle that thought, though, about Jesus Christ. To them, he could have never have had a zit on his face. Never went to the bathroom. Never laughed. Never sneezed. Never got tired of his carpentry job. He never, I repeat, never could have been tempted by the girl next door. Listen, folks, if that's your kind of Jesus, I can relate to you on some level because there's something very uncomfortable about thinking that Jesus could have felt all the temptations we feel, isn't it? But as one man writes, he says, there is something safe about a God who never had calluses. There's something awesome about a God who never felt pain. There's something majestic about a God who never scraped his elbow. But there is also something cold about a God who cannot relate to what you and I feel. Feel. Now, coldness repels, but there is power and sympathy, isn't there? But we just got finished talking the last couple of weeks about Jesus felt compassion for people. It is tender and attractive to those who need help. Jesus felt it all. He got tired. His heart pounded from nervousness. He fell asleep in the back of a boat in the middle of a storm. He was disappointed with people. He might have had to roll off his mat some mornings, actually with a sore throat and a headache. Maybe. 
He has worked morning, noon, and night without so much as a thank you or a nice job. Jesus knows how you feel. He knows how I feel. His humanity was his battleground. Do a little study and read through the Gospels and mark every reference to Jesus' humanity sometime. Here are some things you'll find. He knew temptation of every kind, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We just saw that in Matthew 4. He knew what it was like to submit to unbelievers in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, and Hebrews 5. He knew pain and sorrow, according to Isaiah 53. He knew grief and agony. He knew disappointment with people in Luke 22, when at the Last Supper, all of his disciples, his closest companions, were arguing about who was greatest. And then Judas betrayed him. He knew the rejection of friends in John chapter 6 when everybody left him. He knew betrayal from Judas, even from Peter. He knew frustration with the rich young ruler. He knew anger in dealing with inflexible people. He knew what it was like to be hated in John chapter 15, verse 18. He was misunderstood even by his own family in John chapter 7. And he knew death, according to Hebrews 2, verse 9. And he experienced the struggle against sin more than any man alive. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 and 4 says this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary of faint heart or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You see, Jesus knows how you feel. Not only was he tempted as we are, but as our high priest, he continues to anticipate the temptations that we will face. He sympathizes with us in them, and he is able to help us through them, if we seek his help. Again, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 says, Therefore, it was necessary for Jesus to be in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could, bear, he, he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. He then could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people since he himself has gone through suffering and temptation. He is able to help us when we are being tempted. You get that? And then Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 and 26, verses we really need to remind ourselves of more often. Therefore... He is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. The difference between the temptations that we go through and what Jesus experienced is that he never succumbed to any of them. We sin constantly, but he never did. And he never could. That's the doctrine of Christ's impeccability. Look that one up and study that one for a while. That'll blow your head up. Does that surprise you that he couldn't sin? 
You might be thinking, well, how could he have really understood temptation unless he experienced sin? He had no sin nature, so therefore the temptation could not possibly have been as strong as ours. Not true. Adam and Eve had no sin nature before they fell, yet they failed the temptation. The strength of the temptation is not determined by the inherent disposition to sin. Let me say that again. The strength of the temptation is not determined by the inherent disposition that we have to sin. Listen, I can eat Snickers bars or Buster bars at Dairy Queen. I'm allergic to peanuts. But that does not curb the overwhelming temptation I experience to indulge. I mean, I can't eat them. I shouldn't eat them, right? Because I'm allergic to the peanuts. But that doesn't stop me from being tempted. The fact of the matter is that Jesus, because he did not sin, knows the full brunt of temptation. He knows it in a way that we don't because we always give into it before it runs its entire course. It may indeed be argued and has been argued that only one who fully resists temptation can know the extent of its force. Think about that. Think about that from the perspective. Let me give you a word picture. Much like an immovable boulder bearing the full brunt of the raging sea, but not moving. Thus, Jesus, the sinless one, has a greater capacity for compassion than any sinner could have for a fellow sinner. Just because Jesus never sinned, it does not mean that life was easier for him. Now, don't misinterpret the meaning here. This isn't a passage that compares us with Jesus, saying that if Jesus as a man could endure temptation without sinning, so can you. That's not what this text is saying. Not at all. On the contrary, it's a passage that says you can't do it. You and I need help. And Jesus is the only one that can give it. That's what this passage is saying. Because he knows how you feel, and because he survived all of these temptations unscathed, you can be confident of his ability to help. Amen? And his door is always open to us. So as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, so let's walk right up to him and get what he is so eager and ready to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. Listen, in this calloused, chaotic world, you can find confidence in a savior who cares. He has the authority. He has the affinity. And lastly, we can have confidence in Christ because of his unlimited accessibility. Verse 16, look at it. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Unlimited accessibility. Now, contrary to the world's opinion, Christianity is a religion of free access to God. It's not exclusive. It's, it's, it's free access to God in Christ. No other religion can make that offer. You've got to jump through all kinds of hoops before you can reach God in any other re religion. But in Christianity, 
You just need to be in Christ. The privilege is always available to you. In the Old Testament, this could never happen. The sinner's approach to God was only through the high priest in the Old Testament and only once a year. But if your high priest is Jesus Christ, you have open access 24 7, 365, right? The veil has been torn, according to Matthew 27 51, from top to bottom opening the way into the holy of holies. The word translated confidence or boldly here in verse 16 is from a word that means freedom of speech, believe it or not. So here's the thing. Here's the application of that truth. Believers can speak freely and openly with God about their struggles. Freedom of speech. Jesus, who has authority, who shares a common affinity with our weaknesses, also offers his availability to us. You need a listening ear? Jesus is always available. He understands perfectly and can provide the perfect help that we need at any time, day or night. I'm glad, I'm glad we have a throne of grace available to us, aren't you? It's a throne of grace that's available. That's a beautiful phrase, a beautiful phrase. You ever think about that? You ever meditate on that? I have a throne of grace. You have a throne of grace if you're in Christ. God may have set up a throne of justice, And he will someday, for those who reject this offer of Christ, but to all who come to him in need and by faith in Christ, he chose to offer us a throne of grace. We didn't deserve it, but that's what we got. And why did he offer it? So that you and I might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That's what it says. When we need it most... Not that we might find judgment and shrink back in fear, but grace so that we would keep on coming to him when we need to, which is just about every moment of every day, right? Here's a distinction that you need to remember. You might already know this, but remind yourself of it. Number one, grace. It's getting what you don't deserve. Justice. It's getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Notice here, we come to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace. There's no justice there. You know why? Because justice was paid at the cross by Jesus Christ. Robert Louis Stevenson said this. He said, there is nothing but God's grace. We walk upon it, we breathe it, We live and die by it. It makes the rails and the axles of the universe. As sinners, we deserve God's justice, no question about it, but as believers in Christ who satisfied God's justice through the cross, we get grace and mercy. Story is told of a woman who, after receiving the proofs of her photo session, was ticked off at the photographer. 
I used to be a photographer, so I know kind of what that's like. She stormed into his studio and screamed, these photos don't do me justice. To which he quaintly replied, miss, with a face like yours, you don't need justice, you need mercy. <laughs> with miserable lives like ours, left to ourselves, God knew that we needed something beyond justice. We need grace. We need mercy. And he makes it available to us through Jesus. It is our misery that calls forth God's mercy. I remember some years ago, my, my little granddaughter was just starting to walk. And she tripped and she was falling headlong toward the corner of our coffee table, which has glass on it. And out of instinct I, was instinct, I was sitting there and I put my foot out to catch her before she hit the glass and she scraped her cheek against my sneaker, the sole of my sneaker. I immediately picked her up and all she could do was hold on to me and cry her little eyes out. It was a big, like, sneaker burn on her cheek. And I knew how she felt. And it wrecked me. It awakened my sympathy, and I wanted to reach out and relieve her pain in any way that I could. But even if I had to take that pain myself. But that's what this verse is saying. He knows how you feel. He knows how I feel. And he's made a way for you and I to get the help that we need in our time of need. In the original language, the phrase reads like this, help that is well-timed. We can come to him for help in our time of need. Help that's well-timed, it's always on time. And I hope you never forget that. So when you're under the gun at work, Jesus knows how you feel. You got more to do than is humanly possible in your life on your schedule. So did he. You've got children who make the piranha hour out of your dinner hour. Jesus knows what that's like. People take more from you than they give. Jesus understands that. Your teenagers won't listen. Your students won't try. Your employers give you blank stares when, you, when they assign you tasks. Believe me, friend, Jesus knows how you feel. This, however, is also a call for you to come to Christ's help before it's too late. That's also help that is well-timed. And friends, none of us ever knows when it's too late. And so the Bible constantly urges us to come now. Now is the time of need. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. In our work together with God, then, we beg you who have received God's grace not to let it be wasted. Hear what God says. When the time came for me to show you favor, I heard you. When the day arrived for me to save you, I helped you. Listen, this is the hour to receive God's favor. Today is the day to be saved. So, what in this world are you waiting for? Let's pray. Oh, our Father.
Lord, we come empty. Pockets pulled out with nothing there to offer. And we need you, Lord God, Jesus Christ, more than ever. Have mercy on us, the sinners. Jesus, we pray. Please.